Hey, Rand Army, this is George Hardy, and I want all of you to know my friends at the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast are reviewing my movie, Troll 2. And just remember, you can't piss on hospitality. I want to love it. From the Black Lodge, it's me, the free will burning, head turning, ass kicking, machismo dripping, master podcast and mouthpiece of the Southeast, Brandon A. Lane bringing you a new edition of the Rants from the Black Lodge podcast. The Room, Oversexed Rug Suckers from Mars, Manos, The Hands of Fate, or Plan 9 from Outer Space, these films are all worthy contenders to the title of Best Worst Movie, but only one can reign supreme in this craptastic pantheon of so-bad-it's-good cinema. That movie is Troll 2, starring none other than the gentleman you heard at the top of this episode, Neil Boggs' favorite father, George Hardy. I want all of you out there in the rant army to track George down on Facebook and let's let him know that we are glad to have him stop by the Black Lodge. Then, I want all of you to pop over to Twitter and Instagram, give us a follow at Rants Black Lodge, subscribe to the podcast on one of the many platforms we're available on, including iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcast, Podbean, Spotify, Player FM, and don't forget to stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. Troll 2 and its excellent documentary Best Worst Movie are going to be on full display tonight on the podcast, but first, we've got some messages from our sponsors. Hello, I'm Chantel, the assistant manager of Brain Dead Network. Brain Dead Network is a film and podcast promotion company that is dedicated in bringing you the best content. We promote and market films from talented filmmakers, and we also work with podcasts to give them more of an audience. If you would like to know more about Brain Dead Network, please visit our website, braindeadnetwork.home.blog, and like us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to check out our awesome podcasts, B-Movie Drive-In, Beyond the Crypt, Rants from the Black Lodge, and Hellhounds of Horror. Come visit us if you dare. Brain Dead. Next Generation Wrestling brings some of the most talked about and star-studded professional wrestlers from around the world. Based out of East Tennessee, NGW is becoming one of the most sought-after independent wrestling promotions in the past four years. Witness NGW Live or on demand on the High Spots Wrestling Network streaming app. Follow us on social media platforms at NextGenTN. Alright, Ran Army, with 19 pages of notes, I am ready to tackle Troll 2 and the excellent documentary that it spawned, Best Worst Movie. So let's hit the ground running. Troll 2 was released on home video October 12, 1990. Now you gotta say, back then, the home video direct-to-market was not the dumpster fire that uh, it 
came to be in the mid and late 90s. But Troll 2 definitely added to the, uh, at least the public perception of home video movies not being that great. Granted, over the years, the film's uh, intended audience has uh, embraced it for reasons different than it was intended. Let's just say Troll 2 didn't exactly help the home video market. Yeah. So, its budget... Well, I really couldn't tell you. I did all sorts of research trying to find out how much the money they spent on this. And uh, on the IMDb page, there's actually a joke where it says $10. I had a good laugh about that. But I wasn't able to actually uh, pinpoint it down. And the gross, uh, no uh, info on that as well. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that, I mean, look at the movie. Obviously, it didn't have a huge budget. And due to the, you know, the HBO uh, home video licensing and all that stuff, I'm sure this movie turned a profit, but it probably wasn't the barn burner they were looking for it to be, like a lot of horror movies, you know, kind of are. Rotten Tomatoes has this movie rated at a 6%. Uh, at one point it was at zero, so it's actually gone up. Um, the audience score, 44%, probably a little more accurate. People are starting to, to gain a, a following for it, and they're seeing the, uh, the comedic genius that is behind it. Uh, IMDb has it rated a 2.9% out of 10 and it's actually rated number 29 on IMDb's bottom rated movies of all time. Yet again, at one point it was rated number one, but since the release of that great documentary I mentioned earlier, Best Worst Movie, it has gone up considerably and people realize that, something I'll get into a little later with artistic intent, that there is merit to this film despite its awfulness in most technical sense. Uh, Metacritic has it rated at a 56% and Google users rated it 52%. I, I gotta say this probably pretty accurate to the the quality overall. If you are listening to this and you've never seen the movie, I invite you to uh, watch it with fresh and untainted eyes. Don't watch videos about the, the famous scenes in it. Go watch it and just see what you think. Then seek out why people like it. And if you line up with that, rewatch it. And I guarantee you, you're going to see things that you didn't see before that you're going to find absolutely hilarious. Because there is not a second of this film that doesn't have something wrong with it or something strange about it. I'll just t take you back in time. I saw this movie probably maybe 1992 or 1993. It had been out a, a few years at this point, and it was on HBO. My aunt had one of those giant satellite dishes that was the size of a house that you had to, like, turn. You know, it would take, like, five minutes to turn to find the signal for, depending on what channel you're trying to get to, uh, HBO, Cinemax, whatever it was on. And I was of that age generation that didn't realize this movie was as bad as it is. So I just took it at face value. Now, yeah, I did find it strange that there are no trolls in Troll 2. We'll get to that a little later. It was just another movie to me. Now, I, I love and loved, past tense, uh, John Carl Beekler's film Troll, which preceded it. So I always held Troll 2 in a negative light as compared to that film because special effects and everything in that movie are really good, and this movie is definitely a step down. But over the years, Troll 2 has sort of risen from its ashes and become this phoenix of just a ridiculous nature. So I gotta say it, Troll 2, one of my all-time favorite films. Call me a hipster, maybe I am, but Troll 2 has definitely risen in the ranks. On Fat Tony's hit list, and this was hard to compile, and I'll explain in just a moment as to why. There are 13 kills, 14 if you include the guy at the very beginning uh, during uh, Grandpa Seth's 
uh, story that he's telling. Beyond that, this number was just impossible to correlate because the editing in this movie is just bonkers shit. There is no perfect layout of like where things are. Um, they just cut from like uh, this one scene where like all the trolls are getting like uh, destroyed <laughs> by the power of a ham sandwich, mind you, <laughs> which is just ridiculous because they're vegetarians. And I tried to take note of which troll is which, and you see some of them dying multiple times, but I can't tell if that is intended that they're two trolls that look alike or if they're ones that are, it's just the same costume and editing's bad. So either way, pick apart that number as you will, and I will take no offense at it. <laughs> so I apologize. <laughs> I'm still flustered. The Golden Boner Award for Best Kill in this film absolutely goes to one of the most ridiculous things I've ever seen in a movie. A ghost calls to the sky and has a preacher lit on fire by lightning. This preacher also is, is a troll in disguise, but that's besides the point. And you get to see this great slow motion scene of the of the stuntman writhing in, in fire and uh, if you know anything about the production of this movie, um, <laughs> he was probably paid very poorly to be lit on fire so bless him for his sacrifice for the art of film. I have rewatched this scene a hundred times out of context from the movie. You know, God bless you, YouTube. So I, I invite, if you watch any scene from this movie that's not one of the ones that people talk about, this is the one to go to. And trust me, there are plenty more to come, so stick around. On Stank Dick Eddie's titty tally, we got a whopping zero. However, there is a caveat at the very end of the film. Uh, you get to see a green slime-covered dummy torso of the mother who has been being eaten by the trolls. Breasts are bare, but I don't know that I would necessarily count that, nor would I want to see the mother in this film's bare breast. We'll definitely get to her as we go on. So let's talk about how this monstrosity of a film got from where it was to where it is. From page to screen, although produced under the title Goblins, United States distributors were skeptical about the film's chances to succeed as a standalone film and renamed it Troll 2. This was an attempt to market it as a sequel to the 1986 Empire Pictures film Troll, which I mentioned earlier, directed by John Carl Beekler, God rest his soul, directed uh, Friday the 13th Part 7 as well and Prison. Great, uh, great movies. The two films, however, have zero connections. No trolls are actually depicted in Troll 2, which is strange as to why it's called Trolls. The film's production was rife with difficulties largely revolving around the language barrier between the Italian-speaking crew and the English-speaking cast. Producer Joe D'Amato, and I'm probably mispronouncing that, Schlockmeister Italian Cinema, uh, did a lot with Bruno Mattai and uh, the director of this film, who we'll introduce a little later down the road. Uh, their approach to low-budget filmmaking uh, was uh, not exactly what you would call productive. <laughs> they were basically like... These are the words, you say them, we point the camera at you, and everything else be damned. Uh, the resulting film has come to be evaluated as one of the worst ever made. Now, I'm going to argue against that um, a little later. It definitely has that reputation for a reason. In subsequent years, the film has gained a cult following and has garnered a huge fan base. In 2009, directed a critically acclaimed documentary about the production of Troll 2 and its subsequent popularity, humorously titled Best Worst movie. Now here we are 10 years later and the long-awaited sequel to Troll 2 is said to be released under the title Under Con 
Troll from writer Eric Hordes and Alexander Koenig. And it will star none other than George Hardy, who you heard at the very top of this podcast. Thank you, Mr. Hardy. We appreciate your participation. Now, the hallmarks of every great bad film are tropes. And you can say that even for good films. There are certain things that these films all have in common. Now, so movie uh, movies that are so bad they're good, they have this list. And so what we're going to do now is we're going to trope on it! We're going to go down this list and we're going to see where Troll 2 ranks in the pantheon of bad films by its tropes. Trope number one, ridiculous premise. I would say a movie called Troll 2 about goblins, that's pretty ridiculous. And even if you break it down further about that, it's about a family of the city trading places with a family from the country so country people can turn flesh into vegetables so the trolls can eat. The movie makes no sense. It's ridiculous. So yes, check for that one. Continuity errors. Oh yeah. Um, I watched this movie back this past week and <laughs> there are too many to list. Uh, the major one we'll get to uh, specifically about a character's shirt um, changing uh, very uh, direct obviousness uh, throughout the film. Bad acting. Now, bad acting is subjective, but I think it's pretty pretty understandable as to why people would perceive this movie to have bad acting. So yeah, big one for that one. Unintentional comedy. We're definitely going to talk about uh, the intent of this movie as opposed to its uh, reality. And uh, this movie not intended to be a, a comedy. That's big check right there. Plot holes slash plot conveniences. Uh, yeah, um, there's no reason for half these things to happen other than the script said for them to. So big check there. Character is a one-dimensional stereotype. Um uh, stereotypes abundant, uh, so yeah, um, Holly's boyfriends and uh, their doofy uh, college frat boy guys, big stereotypes. I could go down the list, but so many in this film. Redundant slash nonsensical dialogue. Yep. Uh, probably uh, the thing to me, uh, aside from the visuals, this is the thing that makes this movie heads and tails above most other bad movies is that the dialogue is, it's like you put the script into Google Translate to, to translate into a different language and then you did it backwards. So like you put it in Aramaic and then you put it back into English and this is the script you got. It probably make more sense if I said Italian rather than Aramaic, but that was the first thing that popped in my fucking head. So, so anyways, check there. <laughs> bad slash cheap special effects. The the special effects in this movie have a charm, but nobody is going to go out of their way to say that they're good. So yeah, check for that one. Day for Night Shot. Yep. They're pretty fucking obvious. And the final one on our list, Exposition Dump. Uh, pretty much every character at one point or another has a monologue of stuff that is quote-unquote important to the plot of the film. A writing standard for writing a good script that you show, don't tell. So to have a character just say everything rather than show it, that's a different, a definite hallmark of a so bad it's good film. So this movie has a 10 out of 10 score. When I was compiling these lists, um, there are a couple on here. I'm like, well, I don't think those are in there. But after watching the movie, yeah, they're definitely all there. So 10 out of 10. It's a first, I believe, on the show. So now that we've established why Troll 2, at least in base terms, is 
so bad it's good, one of the worst movies of all time. Let's just hit the ground running. This synopsis. When young Joshua, which was played by Michael Stevenson, learns that he will be going on vacation with his family to a small town called Nilbog, he protests adamantly. He is warned by the spirit of his deceased grandfather that the goblins populate the town. His parents, Michael, played by George Hardy, and Diana, Margot Prey, dismiss his apprehensions but soon learn to appreciate their son's warnings. Guided by his uh, grandfather's ghost, will Joshua and his family stand a chance in fighting off these evil beings? Anybody who's seen this movie, um, that's a pretty accurate statement, but it makes it sound a lot more grand than it actually is because half this movie is people standing around doing nothing with a lot of nonsense at the end. The uh, nonsense, uh, well, we get all take it all back to the source, and that would be the director, Claudio Fragasso. Now, he's had a long career of uh, directing Italian, and a, a few things that have crossed over into America. Uh, Hell of the Living Dead, which, admittedly, pretty good zombie film. He did uh, also of the zombie series, which is a whole rabbit hole of... Um, continuity and things abandoned. But uh, he did Zombie 3, 4, and 5, um, none of which I believe were actually shot under those titles and they were retroactively named zombie films. The fifth movie doesn't even have zombies in it. It's about birds. It's called Killing Birds. This is fucking weird. But Italian cinema for you. He also directed Monster Dog with Alice Cooper. Um, if you've never seen this movie, I highly recommend that you you watch it, but you don't watch it for uh, thinking you're going to get anything good out of it. It's terrible. Everybody is dubbed in the movie, including Alice, which I don't I don't get. Uh, why even have him? But this was it was made during that time where Alice is kind of out of favor with uh, pop culture, and it's right before he hit it big back again. Uh, the the movie's kind of a cool uh, thing if you're an Alice Cooper fan because it includes a couple of songs that were not available up at least up until uh, they did the box set, um, the Life and Crimes of Alice Cooper. There's a, uh, a music video towards the very, very beginning of the movie where um, it's so oh, it's mad, it's really bad, but it's him like talking about basically all the different personalities he has. And he's like, Sometimes I'm Billy the Kid, sometimes I'm Sherlock Holmes. And it, it's very literal the things you're seeing on screen. So, at the end, that just kind of adds to the idea that Claudio and this Italian group of filmmakers were very literal in their interpretation of things and there's very little subtlety to it. But, just so we're nice and clear, Alice Cooper was in Wayne's World with Chris Farley, who was in Coneheads with Dan Aykroyd. You just got busted! And um, He's regularly worked under several synonyms, him being Claudio. He worked under the uh, title of Clyde Anderson, Drake Floyd, Claudio San Severo, I might be saying that wrong, Werner Knox, and his most used pseudonym, Uncredited, Burn. <laughs> uh, he's been married to Troll writer, uh, Troll 2 writer Rosella Drudy since May of 1978, so uh, 41 years, that's uh, pretty pretty cool. Glad you guys have found each other, because uh, with, without this unholy union of you two, we never would have gotten the uh, most batshit crazy troll-not-troll troll movie ever made. hes I mentioned this a little earlier, but he's worked uh, with Italian schlockmeister Bruno Mattei and Joe D'Amato on many occasions. Okay, um, artistic intent. I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of all this. Okay, when they set out to make this movie, they being Claudio and his wife, they they were intending to make 
a profound horror movie. There's just a couple of problems. This movie is not scary. It's strange more than anything, um, just because of the language barrier between the Italian crew and the American actors. However, artistic intent doesn't necessarily... The, the bug does not stop there. In a sense, once you have produced something and it is out of your hands and it is out in the ether with the fans, it's not your property anymore. And suddenly its interpretation becomes something more or less than what you meant it to be. Now, criticism aside, um, because there's a lot to criticize about this movie um, from filming technique and, and things like that, but ultimately, does this movie succeed at being entertaining? Which I think we can all agree he was trying to make an entertaining movie. But it's entertaining for reasons different than he intended. So, with that in mind, does that make this a bad movie because it is not the way he intended it? It's a bad movie on a technical level, but it is a good movie because it is entertaining. It's sort of a weird paradox, and despite the fact that he has kind of fought back for years against people saying the movie is bad, he made a great movie, just not the way he intended it to be. I don't know, I'm probably not doing a great job of explaining this, but I would invite all of you out there in the Rant Army, go and look into this, because you can apply this to a lot of cinema. Um, the Room, for instance, which is one of the, the best bad films of all time, the films of Ed Wood, there is such an intent on delivering something heartfelt that despite it, their many failures, it does succeed in a manner. So I, I personally find that kind of interesting that he did deliver a great movie, just not the wet, just not the great movie he thought he was delivering. So um, let's let's hear from the horse's mouth. This is a quote directly from Claudio. Two or three years after I shot Troll Two, I asked the producers how the film was doing in America. One of the producers read me what the critics had written about Troll Two, and said, "Mamma mia, it's doing poorly." I don't follow the critics, and the critics don't follow me. I don't make movies to be praised by critics. Troll 2 is a film that examines many serious and important issues like eating, living, and dying. It's an important film which talks about family, the union of the family, resisting all of those things that want to destroy it and see it dead. People want to eat this family. In Italy, we call this a parable. Well, in America, we don't call that a parable. <laughs> You know, after watching the documentary, which I recommend even more more so than Troll 2, but you kind of need to see Troll 2 to really get the context of, of the documentary, you really get a sense that, that he is bitter that dislike it, but he is sort of, I don't know, ambivalent to it at the same time because there's this one part where they're standing outside of a screening and he's going down the line and his English is not great, but people are like, yeah, this movie's great, and um, but he's not in on the joke that they're, <laughs> they're, they're hating on it. And then there's a part later on when they're having a Q&A with the cast and they're talking about how bonkers the movie is and he's sitting off to the side why he wasn't up there with answering questions i'm not really exactly sure he's visibly getting angry about this and he's calling him out i don't know I, I feel bad for him but at the same time it's like man you had a full career in film uh, that's more than most people can say they're they're very talented filmmakers out there who have made like fred decker is a perfect example fred decker made um night of the creeps he did monster squad and then his film career was completely derailed by robocop 3 
anybody that's seen RoboCop 3, you know that's a terrible movie. But this guy was supremely, supremely talented, and it's taken basically till now for him to to get into a position where he could potentially even make another movie. So the fact that Claudio has been able to crank out, understandably, or... Uh, it's hard to explain. Films that may or may not be good, <laughs> depending on your viewpoint, he, he's incredibly lucky. Uh, he also had this to say, Being considered the worst movie is almost a, as much of a compliment as being the best. It means I've made an impression. Well, that kind of goes against a little bit what I was just saying. Let's just be honest. He, he's saying that to say face, but he's, he's right. You know, Ed Wood perfect example of a, a terrible filmmaker who didn't care about the details, only the broad strokes. And his films are eternally more memorable than a lot of the, the fare that was released during the same time, similar subject matter. There's something special about him that allows him to continue to make films despite their shortcomings are memorable in one way or another. So we can't talk about Claudia without talking about his wife, Rosella Drudy. She's also had a long career in film, uh, writing and things of that nature. She wrote The Crawlers. This movie has a weird history all of its own. Uh, it's also known as Contamination Point Seven. Uh, if you're fans of Joe Bob Briggs' Last Drive-In, it was on there too long ago during uh, the first season of the show. But this movie has a reputation in other territories of the world as being known as Troll 3, which makes it even more bonkers because there's no trolls or goblins in it. Now, at one point, I had been doing some research that I guess the reason that this uh, movie is called Troll 3 is because Michael Moriarty and some of the other cast from the original Troll were supposed to reprise their character roles as, um, <laughs> believe it or not, Harry Potter and Harry Potter Jr. Yeah, calling you out on this. She stole that name. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. But it never happened. So why is the movie called Troll 3? Tricking people into buying it. Which, after Troll 2, I don't even know why that would have been an alluring thing. Because it took a long time for people to kind of realize the genius of this film's ridiculousness. Um, she wrote Inner Zone with Bruce Abbott. Who was in Casual Sex with Leah Thompson? Who was in Back to the Future with Crispin Glover? Who was in Charlie's Angels with Bill Murray? Who was in Ghostbusters? You just got busted again. So that's two times. She's written a lot of the films that her husband has directed. They've been pretty much a package deal for, you know, the past 30 years. To quote her, <laughs> I didn't want to write your typical horror movie, so I came up with a story about trolls who were vegetarians, because at that point in my life, I had many friends who'd all become vegetarians, and it pissed me off. So I had the idea of replacing the vampires in a vampire story with vegetarians. It's a criticism, a ferocious analysis of today's society. Now, far be it for me to not find metaphor and parallels of film and and life. I'm a David Lynch fan. I've you know, I, I can I can dig a hole and, and look with the best of them. But I just don't think these things come across in the film. Maybe they're there. I tend to think that some of these ideas are probably in your head, in her head, but not really on the screen. The thing about filmmaking is that there are three films produced. There's the film that is written. There's the film that is shot. There is the film that is edited. Maybe there is a cut of this movie or a version of this movie where those ideas come across. It's just not the 
version that was released to us. So, now that we have the framework of how it was written, let's let's talk about the cast because they are the shining stars of this film and the the one that shines above them all, the great George Hardy who plays the character of Michael Waits. Now, he hadn't done much acting, like, at all. But since the release of Troll 2, they gained that fan base, and then they released Best Worst Movie, and it sort of kick-started uh, a small acting career for him um, in the, the past decade. Uh, he was in 2007's Street Team Massacre. He was in Todd Sheets' House of Forbidden Secrets with Lou Temple from The Walking Dead and The Devil's Rejects and uh, Troma, uh, Troma founder Lloyd Kaufman. So he's got some uh, connections there, working with some well-known people. Go Shark 2, Urban Jaws. <laughs> I literally just listed that because uh, the title is ridiculous. Um, although his scenes were deleted from that movie. But I had to I had to say Go Shark 2. Um, how have I not seen this movie? Um, he, he made the movie Here Comes Rusty with uh, comedy legend Fred Willard, uh, Mark Brochart from the great documentary uh, American Movie. I hope it, uh, if you've never seen seen it, please search it out. It's a great documentary about a a guy who, uh, much like Ed Wood, is willing to do anything to make a movie. And it's just a, a fun character piece about two guys and their love of film and their wacky family. Great stuff. Um, he was also in Here Comes Here Comes Rusty with Lauren Adams um, from Chasing Amy and Big Daddy. I have had a huge crush on her for years. And I uh, there's a little side note to this. I, I'm actually going to be meeting this very month. The great Kevin Smith at a showing of the new uh, Jay and Silent Bob reboot. And uh, I'm going to be asking him some questions about Lauren Adams. Because uh, she just seems like the sweetest person. Um, unlike many of Hardy's films, Here Comes Rusty received very positive reviews. Here, here's another movie that's uh, got a good uh, bit of re positive reviews. is a movie called Texas Cotton, which he actually stars in. The great George Hardy finally got another starring role, and I could be happier for him because he... I haven't seen this film. Um, it's on my short list, um, especially considering he uh, shares the screen with the very lovely and talented Tiffany Shepes. Now, Tiffany is a uh, scream queen, uh, probably what you call a second-generation scream queen. She she popped up, uh, you know, doing some trauma movies, and she's she's pretty well-known. With that being said, I actually had an interaction with her that didn't exactly go uh, entirely positively. About a decade ago, I was at a convention called Ink and Blood or Blood and Ink. I can't remember which one it is. Uh, one of them is a tattoo-slash-horror convention. The other one is... Uh, a traveling show about um, Gutenberg presses and biblical printing things. So, whichever one was the horror, <laughs> the horror convention is the one I'm talking about. This convention, I mean, like the the horror section was just like a room. It was not very big, but the wall, like the whole line of people next to each other, was all legends. Reggie Bannister was there. Gunnar Hansen, Edwin Neal. Um, Bill Mosley, Doug Bradley, Kane Hodder, Michael Berryman, uh, Ken Free, uh, uh, Sid Haig, God rest his soul. Um, and then at the very end was Tiffany Shepes. Now, I was pretty uh, familiar with Tiffany at this point, having uh, rewound some, um, some scenes that she was in where she was exactly wearing too many clothes, but I, I, didn't, I didn't realize she was there. I'm talking with Michael Berryman who 
God is, you know, Titan, you know, one of the most iconic figures in the world of horror. Hills Have Eyes, Weird Science, and on down the line. And he's telling me this story about on the set of Hills Have Eyes where they they had snakes, live snakes, and they were keeping them in a cooler, and I guess somebody didn't tell somebody, and they opened it up to get it, thinking it was a drink or water or whatever, and, and, you know, here's a fucking rattlesnake. And he's like, oh, fuck, a rattlesnake. So I'm like listening to this, and out of the corner of my eye, I keep hearing, you know, people talking. So I'm, you know, a little distracted. And out of the corner of my eye, I kind of turn, and I see her booth. She has her 8x10s laid out for sign autographs. All the ones, like, right in my line of sight, she is quite naked. And it was completely involuntary. I'm like, oh, fuck, you're naked in those pictures. She she, she looks at me and is like, uh, yeah. She takes a pen, like a Sharpie, and lays it over the, the picture I was referring to, right over her nipples, by the time I was finished talking with Michael Berryman, she had packed up and left. So I don't know if she'd heard this kind of all day or if I struck a nerve with her. But man, I wanted to meet her. I wanted, I would have gladly paid for an autograph. That was just uh, a dumb, out-of-the-moment, um, you know, dudeism that I couldn't... I just couldn't help myself. So, Tiffany, if you ever hear this, I would love to have you on the podcast. You're a very lovely lady. Please forgive my boyish charms um, because they failed me that day. George, Back to George Hardy. His line, You can't piss on hospitality! I won't allow it! Is regarded as one of the most memorable So Bad It's Good lines of dialogue along with You're tearing me apart, Lisa! from The Room. If you have ever been on YouTube, surfing, you know, searching, you know, randomly in the middle of the night, uh, chances are, if you come across bad movie stuff, this scene, and another scene that will come up a little later on, you're going to see this ad nauseum. It's become also a popular meme and, and gif. So, long after he's dead, this moment has transcended the film to a completely different level. I mean, that's got to be cool. I'm sure he probably gets tired of saying it, because, I mean, come on, I had him say it for the intro, but he was happy to do it. I apologize, I, I don't mean to, you know, <laughs> beat a dead horse, but we love you, George, we love you so much. He was reportedly paid $1,500 for his time working on Troll 2. That whole uh, idea that the movie only cost $10 I was pointing at earlier in the IMDb <laughs> section, not exactly true. I don't know what anybody else was paid, but um, fifteen hundred bucks back in nineteen ninety—not not too shabby. I mean, it's, it definitely wasn't scale, but this was uh, a non-union production, I believe. Now, back in his earlier years, he was a male cheerleader at Auburn, and he had a very successful uh, dentist office in Alexander City, Alabama, and still going today. One of the true great things that you will take away—not so much from watching Troll Two, but from Best Worst Movie is George Hardy. He's such an incredibly likable and humble, down-to-earth guy. Now, when we get to the section where I'm talking more in-depth about Best Worst Movie, um, there is a little bit of negative, but you just get a you get such a, a sense that this guy is nice. But, oh my God, man, his acting in this movie is poopy. It is very bad. And whether that is uh, due to inexperience or bad direction, it's it's there forever, but there is a certain charm to it. 
he brings something to the table. You know, there is an an, an arrhythmia to the whole the whole thing that just streams comedy. To quote him, I can remember sitting down with Michael, Connie, and Margot, and we would take the script and we would try to decipher what it meant. We would sit there for hours looking at the script, trying to do an analysis on the scenes, and we just couldn't do it. That, I don't believe, is him saving face. And the reason I believe that is he's been very, very vocal and upfront knowing that this is a bad movie. So, I appreciate his honesty, and that's something that's going to bleed over into the, the documentary. And he has a great sense of humor about it. The people that love him, he's there, and he's be the first person to sign an autograph, take a picture, give a shout-out to a nothing podcast like this one. George Hardy's a great guy. Now, the other component to this, uh, from Troll 2, and then going even further into uh, the great documentary Best Worst Film, I keep saying that, Best Worst Movie, not Best Worst Film, is Michael Paul Stevenson, who plays the role of his son, Joshua Waits. He's had a pretty decent acting career. Oddly enough, he made his on-screen debut in 1990's Beyond Darkness, which was written by Claudio Fragasso and Rosella Drudy. So, he double-dipped. He worked with these people twice. I mean, I know he was a kid and like, okay, this is an opportunity, but I can't imagine that it would have, would have been a lot of adults like, yeah, I want to work with this guy again. So I hope you were paid well. <laughs> uh, he, he did a, some uh, some TV work. Um, he was in the TV movie The Paper Brigade with Robert England, a.k.a. Freddy Krueger. So there's another cool uh, horror tie-in a TV movie uh, called uh, Before He Wakes with Hope Lang, who was in Death Wish. And uh, Nightmare on Street 2. So there's another Freddy Krueger reference. Uh, she was also in a Blue Velvet. Love David Lynch. I'll sing his praises to the day I die. Uh, was in the Balkan Trail with David Hasselhoff, who is in Click with Adam Sandler, who is in I Now Pronounce You Chuck and Larry with Dan Aykroyd, who is in Ghostbusters. You just got busted three times. And it just keeps it going. Now, he also had some smaller roles in Encyclopedia Brown and Touched by an Angel. Now, in more recent years, he has stepped from in front of the camera to behind the camera, has become a director. He directed Girlfriend's Day with Bob Odenkirk. It's a Netflix movie. Amber Tamlin's in it, Stacey Keach, Natasha Leone, and uh, the great Andy Richter. Uh, he, he did a really good documentary that uh, hits home with me about local home haunters in Massachusetts called The American Scare. Now, let me explain a little bit. You have, there, there are many different levels of, of haunted houses. I don't mean like a house that is haunted by ghosts, but a, a haunted house attraction. There's, there's the big wigs, you know, the year-round ones like I work for. Then the the ones that are seasonal that do really good. Shout out to Nash, um, Nashville Nightmare, best haunted house in the country, hands down. And I'm saying that as a guy who works at one. They blow us out of the water. Best haunted house in the country, probably the world. Then there are the ones that are done only in October, and then there are the ones that are done completely out of passion and love, where people build these things in their backyards, or they turn their houses in. And this documentary chronicles uh, a few families in Massachusetts who do this. Seek it out. If you if you have any interest in haunted houses and the things that go into the, you know, the prep work, the acting and stuff like that, this is something you definitely want to get your hands on. But Michael Paul Stevenson is best known, aside from his role in Troll 2, is the director of Best Worst Movie, which I'll be discussing in greater length later in this episode. In regards to the um, infamous pissing scene, which if you've not seen the movie, uh, why are you listening to this? 
in which he jumps up on a table to prevent his family from eating food that will turn their flesh into vegetation for the trolls to eat. He gets up on the table, unzips his pants, and pisses. So this is a, a quote for him about... Um, in the original script, I jump on the table and I say, I'm possessed! I'm possessed! But as soon as this scene was actually performed, uh, Claudio Fragasso decided to tweak it. You walk around the table, up to the chair, and you piss on the food. I thought, did I just hear this right? So yet again, another instance where an Italian is trying... I, I don't know if they, they meant this to be funny. I don't I don't know. This is just so bizarre. What other movie can you think of where, where to prevent someone from eating something, they get up on a table and piss on it? I, I, I'm sure they're out there, but they're far and few between. Another cornerstone to the, the greatness or <laughs> infamy of this film is Margot Prey, who plays the mother, Diana Waits. She only has one other acting credit other than Troll 2. It's called At Gunpoint. Not well received either. Despite only having two acting credits, uh, she is quoted saying, I learn all the time, new things about acting. Even though I may not be acting every day or doing parts every single day, I watch movies and I take mental notes about what I like and what those characters are doing. And very often I write it down on a piece of paper and stick it on a mirror in my bedroom. And then I look at it, you know, till it sinks into my head. Anybody who has seen her acting, you're going to take what she just said there and maybe be a little harsh in criticizing her that maybe you need to stare at that note a little, little harder. Harder. To be fair, she hasn't acted since this, so maybe she's gotten better. It's not for, for me to know or decide, but somebody needs to cast her in another movie. If you crank out performances like this on the regular, you're going to be infamous. Perhaps not for the reasons you mean to be, but she's definitely not phoning it in. She is acting her ass off. In regards to her role in Troll 2, she states, I just made it me. I just did it the way I do it. Because I felt we were just one person, you know. And just take the words and let them come out of my mouth just the way I would do it. And so it became a really simple thing. I'm gathering what she's saying here is that what you see on screen is is her. Which is all the more strange. Finally, in regards to the legacy of Troll 2, she states, After I watched the movie and saw it, I w and I turned off the TV, I just sat back and said, Wow, this is great. This is really great. It was really good. It's simple, elegant, down-to-earth, real natural, actor-actor movie. You know, most of the movies that are around now are fast-paced, car chases and explosions and fires and murders and blood, gore and killings, but you compare our movie to a Catherine Hepburn and Humphrey Bogart movie, and it fits in. Because our movie was about people. And the experiences those people were experiences. Are you fucking kidding me? I don't want to be mean. Because she seems like a nice lady. But you are fucking delusional. There is nothing in this movie that compares to anything Catherine Hepburn or Humphrey Bogart did. I, I Humphrey Bogart took mo more coherent shits than anything <laughs> I apologize. I'm, I'm going to speak a little more about Mar uh, Margot when we get to the Best Worst Movie segment later in the episode. Um, rounding out, <laughs> I'm sorry, rounding out the rest of our cast, we come to Connie Young <clears throat> playing the daughter role of Holly Waits. 
she's she's gone on to have a a decent career since then uh acting in you know b movies um she was in ice spiders with patrick muldoon from starship troopers and uh, vanessa williams uh heaven's door with dean kane and joanna Casti. she was uh one of the replicants in blade runner great movie at age 11 connie won best youth performer in utah i mean she was definitely a star on the rise uh in 2002 she became an instructor facility called and action actor studio in Salt Lake City, Utah. There's there's an old saying that those who can't do teach, and those who can't teach teach gym. <laughs> I don't think that's necessarily applicable here. She seems like a nice lady. She doesn't really go out of her way to acknowledge the whole troll two thing. She uh, and Margot are the two who uh, were least engaging, I guess, in the documentary. Albeit Margot a lot more entertainingly. But she still doesn't put Troll 2 on her resume. And truthfully, I think that's kind of working against her. I think there are schlock movies out there that would hire her specifically because she was in Troll 2. I have to imagine, I'm not. this is not me being mean towards George Hardy, but I feel like that's half the reason why he's getting these acting roles is because he was in Troll 2. So rather than fight against it, just, you know... Let the wind carry you. Uh, I, I think everybody in this movie brings something to it. Her her performance is not very good. It hurts me to even say that because I, I feel like in some regards, even after watching the documentary, like you know these people and they're, they really humanize them. Whatever bad reviews that she got acting-wise, they're probably warranted. That doesn't mean they aren't enjoyable. The... There's a part in the film where she is dancing in front of a mirror, which leads uh, the ghost of Grandpa Seth to uh, seeking out Joshua, but that's beside the point. But she does this whole really ridiculous dance that the, the Troll 2 community has dubbed the Holly Waits dance. She had a background in like cheerleading and stuff, so evidently this whole thing was completely ad-libbed on the spot. It's sort of, I guess, her lasting legacy from this film, but she also has an infamous line of dialogue, <clears throat> if I can say it without cracking up. If my father discovers you here, he'd cut off your little nuts and eat them. He can't stand you. This line was heavily questioned by the cast. Definitely opposed. Now, they they brought this to Claudio saying, hey, teenagers don't talk like this. And Claudio demanded that the line remain in the movie because it was American. Yet again, another example of the disconnect between the Italian crew and the American actors. I don't know how often that she hears this line from people, but I guarantee you if I ever met her, this is the line I would quote to her and I would probably piss her off with it because I would just be so jubilant. It's a ridiculous moment in movie history and the line that precedes it is just as ridiculous coming from her boyfriend who we'll get to a little earlier. The supernatural component of this movie aside from the the not-trolls slash goblins, uh, comes in the form of Grandpa Seth, who is recently deceased, played by Robert Ormsby. He's sort of the uh, soothsayer, you know, the the purveyor, uh, the, the one who kind of fills you in on the details, the exposition dump, if you will. This is his one and only acting role in a movie. But I, I gotta, I'm going to give him a little bit of credit because I think he's actually pretty good. The dialogue is bad across the board. But there is a certain quality to the way he delivers his lines that makes him a little more believable than the, than the other people in the movie. So, with that in mind, uh, his uh, take on his experiences on Troll 2, I always loved bad movies, 
I always thought it would be great to be in a bad movie, but I had no idea when I was making it, I was making that bad of a movie. So it's wonderful to find out, yeah, I made a bad movie. A really bad movie that got famous. He's found, you know, happiness in the ridiculousness, so that's good for him. But, I mean, that's pretty much everything there is to say about him in the movie, except going back to him uh, striking lightning on the the, the preacher and uh, ridiculousness. Uh, Holly's boyfriend, played by Jason Wright. Uh, his uh, character name is Elliot Cooper. Not really done much acting, but he's had a really successful career. Leaving acting behind, Jason has had columns and feature pieces appear on CNN, Fox News, and over 100 newspapers, magazines, and websites across the United States, including the Washington Times, the Chicago Tribune, and Forbes. He's a novelist, and he's had three not one, not two, but three New York Times bestsellers. Probably making him the most successful person on this list. I mean, I guess you could probably argue that Claudio, specifically because he's continued to work, but having three bestsellers on the uh, New York Times list is uh, nothing to shake your nose at. I, I mentioned it a little earlier, but uh, he, he has this uh, infamous scene uh, where he sneaks up into Holly's room and uh, he scares Holly while she's working out and she pops him in his nuts and he says, Well, you trying to turn me homo? What does that even mean? What does it even mean? 150,000th incident in the movie. <laughs> and example as to why Italian crew and the American actors had such a disconnect. Probably the most infamous scene in the movie comes by one of his cohorts, I guess you could say, his friends, the character of Arnold, uh, the character who wears glasses, if you need a little more specificity, played by Darren Ewing. Um, he's had a pretty decent career acting-wise. He was in 2006's Return to Halloween Town. It's a made-for-TV Disney movie, and they got a lot of sequels, and they're very popular. Uh, he was in Unaccompanied Minors, which was directed by Paul Feig, who directed the Ghostbusters reboot. You just got busted four times! And he boasts the most infamous line of dialogue from the film, let alone one of the most famous lines of bad dialogue ever. They're eating her. Then they're going to eat me. Oh my god! He has transcended the film and become a popular meme and gif, which, as I said with George Hardy, that's a level of infamy that you will, A, never escape, and you will never be able to replicate, duplicate, or anything ending in eight. His scenes where he's essentially potted into a plant, um, this is a really controversial point of the, of the film and just the horrible situation that Claudio put some of these actors through. He was standing in that position for 14 hours. They took his shoes, like his actual, his own personal shoes, not something that was provided by wardrobe, like his personal shoes, and they screwed them into this potted plant so he couldn't move even if he wanted to. This led him to complain. Now, in response, he was cited saying, this is Claudio speaking, eventually he started to complain a lot, saying it was impossible to remain standing like this because his legs were beginning to fall asleep. No shit, he was standing for 14 hours. So since the makeup artist had made him a mouthpiece for the scene, I made him wear the mouthpiece. And after that, he didn't speak. So basically, Claudio's... Um, 
way to deal with this wasn't to, hey, let's take a break. Let the guy sit down. Fuck that. We'll put something over his mouth so he can't complain. That's borderline inhumane. I can't say that I have a entirely favorable um, idea of the person of Claudio, but that in context, this is kind of funny, but this certainly wouldn't wouldn't fly on a a SAG film. You know, you have to take regular breaks. And um, in in regards to um, the consensus that Troll Two is bad, um, there's a quote: "We were really trying to make a good movie. We really were. Uh, it just didn't turn out that way." These days, he can be found playing guitar in a band called Dizzy DeSoto. Jason Stedman, he's uh, the blonde with the uh, the headband and the ever-changing yellow shirt, the continuity error that I mentioned a little earlier. During the filming of this, there really wasn't a wardrobe department per se. He starts out the movie wearing a shirt, yellow shirt, that on the, the, le- uh, the uh, left chest, there's like an emblem. Through some strange scenario, they lost this shirt and they needed another one. Well, rather than having the prop department or the makeup department or, you know, the uh, the costume department go out and buy him a new shirt, what did they do? No, they asked him to go out into town and to buy a new shirt. Now, whether they gave him the money or he paid out of his own pocket, I'm not exactly sure, but they didn't care. They didn't care that it wasn't the same shirt. So, example, four billion of the disconnect between the Italian crew and the American actors. I'm going to keep saying that until it's drilled into your head. Um, he's done a few low-budget films. He was in The Deaths of Ian Stone, um, but these days he's a concert and event promoter in Utah. Okay, a.k.a. Corn on the Cob Guy, played by David McConnell, who rounds out the final uh, of the quartet of friends of Holly's boyfriend. He's done some movies from with some incredible actors. He was in 1999's Bats with Lou Diamond Phillips. He was in The Ides of March with George Clooney, Ryan Gosling, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Paul Giamatti, Evan Rachel Woods, Marissa Tomei, and Jeffrey Wright. Damn, that's a great cast list. I've never seen this movie. I need to uh, track that down. His infamy of this film comes from a infamous sex scene. But not just any sex scene. A sex scene that involves a corn on the cob. Now, a character who we'll discuss in just a moment named Credence Leonore Gilgood, who is this gross uh, lady who's got, you know, fucked up teeth, and at some point her arm gets cut off, and then she sticks her arm into uh, parts of Stonehenge. That's another whole topic of discussion. Somehow Stonehenge involves goblins. In a plot point that makes no sense, she makes herself beautiful and goes out to seduce the character of Brent, who is watching television. He's watching television, and suddenly it cuts from the movie he's watching to outside, and Credence is now beautiful. I mean, like, totally banging and she's got an ear of corn so they start getting busy inside the camper and they both start biting this raw piece of corn and the friction from their hot sex just causes popcorn to erupt everywhere this is the one and only film i can point to or ever imagine a scene like this existing in popcorn is popped from the friction of sex disconnect from the Italian filmmakers and crew and the American actors. Oh, which leads us to Deborah Reed, who plays Credence Leonore 
Gil Good. She's had a decent acting career. She was in Stephen King's The Stand. Um, she only has uh, two acting credits, uh, but she's worked in a lot of capacities in the film industry. Um, most notably, she was in the makeup department on Dumb and Dumber. As far as her uh, commenting on her experience in Troll 2, one thing, one thing that makes me happiest about Troll 2 is when I hear fans tell me that it makes them laugh, brings them joy, or some even saying it helped them through some very difficult times. If I couldn't be in the best movie, I sure am glad I was in the worst. There's a lot to be said about that. As somebody, I'm going to be from my point of view. I love movies like this that are so bad they're good, and there is a therapeutic quality to it. I think there's just therapeutic quality in laughter. Sometimes you just have to not take yourself so seriously, and the fact that she's been able to find happiness and that she's made other people laugh, I mean, that's pretty cool. My take on her is uh, she's one of the better actresses in this movie. She really commits to her role. She hams it up beyond uh, what was probably on the script. But she's one of the more memorable things about this movie. And despite them trying to make her look ugly, I would. Well, okay, I'll save that because we got a question about it. But mm, she can get it. Um, she was once a contestant on Hollywood Squares, and she won. So she's had a couple couple brushes with uh, fame throughout her um, her life. Uh, reportedly, the makeup artist working on Troll 2 was unhappy with her casting because she was too pretty. And, to be fair, I do think that kind of... she Her beauty bleeds through the makeup. Now, maybe if they put her in a prosthetic or whatever, she they could have hid that. But at the same time, it's like, why do you want to cover up a face that's so pretty? Um, Deborah's son, Gavin, appears in the film as one of the Nilbog children. Now, I couldn't point him out... Um, I'm assuming uh, during either the parts where they're having the, the church service, the, the troll, troll, not troll slash goblin church service, he's probably in there, or in the part where uh, the, uh, the family is held up in the, the homestead and they're wanting them to, to eat so they can eat them. One other notable thing about her uh, contribution to the film is that she designed her own wardrobe from the film uh, whereas I think some of the characters probably took this as a knock. I think she took it as a uh, as kind of a cool thing to be able to put her whole costume together. Definitely not something you're going to be given the opportunity to do on a lot of films, um, but this movie was super, super, super disorganized. Okay, Troll 2, you, you can't talk about Troll 2 without talking about the documentary that it spurred best worst movie, was released March 14th, 2009. I, I couldn't find the budget, but it grossed $109,895. I'm sure the budget to shoot this was pretty low. Um, most of the people were just willing to participate. So I, I have no reason to believe this wasn't a monumental success comparative to its budget. It's got a, a Rotten Tomato score of 95%. Well-earned. One of the best documentaries you'll ever see about a film or filmmaking or fandom, anything like that. Has an audience score of 84%. I think that's kind of low. 
And I think some of that probably has to do with people seeing the documentary but not really being familiar with the subject matter. I, I would always recommend if you're watching a documentary about something, you know a little bit of something about it. Uh, a great documentary is a great documentary, and it got scores. That's that's a great score. IMDb ranks it as a 7.3 out of 10. I, I would put it higher, but yet again, going back to what I just said, probably why. Metacritic has it as 61%. Google users, which I'm usually uh, most uh, on board with, 81%. I gotta go with the Rotten Tomatoes this time. I gotta say, uh, Rotten Tomatoes, dead on the money. And uh, our good friends at Shudder, which if you're not subscribed to Shudder, do so now. Go and check them out. They got good stuff. Plus Joe Bob. Joe Bob's about to be back. Shudder has a 4.2 out of 5 rating. That's pretty on the money. My biggest takeaway from Best Worst Movie is is something I I, I, I even, it's hard to even talk about this because I don't want to speak ill of people, but there seems to be a a bit of mental illness shared by a couple of the film's actors. Um, I didn't talk about him specifically, but uh, Don Packard, who plays the drugstore owner, now. He freely admits um, in the documentary having been hospitalized many times for mental issues. During the uh, the filming of Troll 2, he he stayed stoned like the entire time because it was the only way that he was able to, to function. But I have to say, I he's he's genuinely scary. He's the only part of the movie where I think Claudio achieves what he's his intent. There's something about his vacant stare and his stilted movements that just send shivers down me. And he does like children's work and stuff now. And by all accounts, he's a really nice guy. But he was not well during the making of this movie. Um, the other is Margot Prey. I was a little hard on her earlier, and I don't, I don't want to be mean, but there, there is something off about her uh, when George and Michael track her down they find a sign outside of her her house in the documentary that says no trespassing except US mail no literature do not ring uh, the bell except by documented request by the owner Viola- violators will be prosecuted they disregard this they they go up there and what happens in this part of the documentary can only be described as bizarre. They there there's just no no life in her eyes. She's taking care of her I'm assuming it's her mother or her grandmother, probably her mother just due to the age. They uh, there's several times during the documentary where they they try to put their <laughs> their coat on and leave and Marco just won't let them leave even though like it's very obviously agitating her mother. When they ask uh, her to go to a screening with the rest of the class, she declines and states that she nah, can't talk. She wishes that she could essentially just disappear. There, There's just something haunting about her stare and her disposition. I don't know. And then going back to the, the quotes I said from her earlier about her just thinking the movie was just great. I, I, I mean, to each their own, but I can't help but just find something wrong with her. I'll say this. I stated it before. I'll state it now. I really do think there is something to be said about her performance. It's magnetic. You cannot take your eyes off of her. So let's get her back out in the acting world. But if there is some underlying mental health issues that need to be addressed, let's uh, let's address them at the same time. I, I touched on this a little bit earlier. Um, my other takeaway from the documentary is just 
the great, great guy that George Hardy is. He comes across as such a lovable, kind, gentle human being. But then there is a point in the documentary, they're going to all these screenings for Troll. Sorry, Troll 2. These are Troll 2 specific screenings. So it's only fans of that movie who are going there. And he's eating it up. You can just see him come to life that like, okay, yeah, these people are on my side. They like me. He recites the lines and uh, he signs the t-shirts and takes pictures. It's it's a wonderful thing for him to be able to kind of get the the spotlight that he didn't get back in 1990. Um, and this spreads to where finally, okay, he's going to do a bigger convention. Now, this is one of those mega conventions where they have people from all over the spectrum. And suddenly he's not the center of attention. It would have been very, very easy for uh, Michael Paul Stevenson to paint this documentary in an entirely positive light of George Hardy, but he doesn't. He doesn't do this. He 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 shows what actually happens. George is a human being, and that's what makes him an interesting character. And I he's not a character. An interesting study. Human beings are not all evil. They're not all good. They make good decisions, they make bad decisions, their feelings can be hurt, and sometimes they will lash out. At this point, at this convention, where he's not receiving the recognition and the love that he was at these screenings, he he starts to become a little snarky. And he says, like, he doesn't understand the people that are there, and they're dirty, and why would you dress up like that? And it doesn't make him a bad person. It makes him a real person. When I'm watching this documentary, it almost, like, tenses my my stomach up because I don't want to see him act like this because he's just like your uncle or your dad. You you don't like it when someone you love, for the lack of a better word, uh, lashes out and acts in a, in a negative way. What about this makes this a better documentary? I'm going to use um, a documentary called The King of Kong, which is quite topical at the moment, uh, as an example. The King of Kong takes a subject that is not important at all. It's about the one man's goal of achieving the high score in Donkey Kong. Now, through this, they create a narrative. Now, the things that they're shooting actually happened. I mean, there's no trickery, but sometimes they will take things and present them, not necessarily in the order they did, to build drama. And the the protagonist of this, Steve Wiebe, is a human being, and you really root for him. But they paint this other guy, Billy Mitchell, in such a negative light that you want to see the underdog win. Now, since all this, Billy Mitchell has been found out to be somewhat of a fraud and cheated to get some of his scores, but that's beside the point. My point is, going back to Best Worst Film, you create a narrative, but you can't create... I mean, what you shoot is there, but it would have been really easy and probably overall probably more uh, acceptable and easily digestible for a general audience had they not painted him in even somewhat of a negative light, him being George Hardy. But that's exactly what makes it a great film, because it is an exploration of humanity and how positive and negative reinforcement can mold somebody. He's an internal optimist. You can just tell that like his family loves him. He's, he's divorced, but he and his wife are still really good friends. I mean, how many people can you say that? 
So George Hardy is a, is a wonderful person, and this documentary, despite the negative light on him in that part, still shines so brightly. But I, I commend I commend the filmmakers for for not cutting that out. Here's another aspect: Michael Paul Stevenson probably more economically could have made the narrative focus of this documentary about himself. You don't need to pay yourself. Now, I don't know what people were paid for this. I'm sure that there was some kind of you know, sniping deal, like here, here's your money, appear in this, um, help do press, blah, blah, blah. But it would have been a lot simpler for him to be able to tell that story. But it would not have been as good a documentary. Telling George Hardy's story is a compelling story because he's a guy who's lived a almost uh, perfect life. You know, I mean, very 1950s idealized, perfect American dream life. And he had this moment of notoriety. It didn't go so well. But now he's reaping the benefits from it. I can't say enough good things about Best Worst Movie. I can't say it's my favorite documentary about filmmaking or fandom but it's certainly top three. So let's uh, let's knock out some general trivia before we start to get to uh, the end of this dog and pony show. Reportedly, most of the cast went to a casting call hoping to be extras, and they ended up in the lead roles, which makes me wonder, like, how bad were some of the uh, auditions that they, they ended up getting the roles? Morgan, Utah, where the the movie was filmed, held a Troll 2 festival in 2007. The town was transformed into the fictional town Nilbog and featured screenings of the film, culminating with the mayor presenting director Claudio Fragasso with a key to the city. So that's pretty cool for him. Uh, The costume designer, Laura Gimzer, is best known for her role as Emmanuel in the long-running softcore porno series. Um, some of you younger members of the Rant Army may not be familiar with this, but those of you that are in the, uh, the 30 to, you know, 40 year age range, um, many, uh, many a spilt seed night watching some Skinamax, uh, very, very familiar with Emmanuel. Emmanuel in space is the best one. So, uh, uh, Conan O'Brien who I'm a big fan of, is a big fan of this movie. He's he's done a few segments uh, back when he was on The Tonight Show and you know even in more recent years, kind of singing its praises. But it just goes to show this movie's fandom, it isn't just this niche thing. It, it really does have a following on a mainstream level. Now, at one point in Troll 2, you see Arnold and his friends hanging out in front of a TV in their camper, watching a man in an ape costume being rocket-launchered Rocket launched, rocket launched, rocket launched through the air. This clip is from a 1983 film, Italian film called Grunt. It's a it's a caveman comedy in which some Cro Magnas worship a magical egg. I have got to see this movie. Track that down. Um, there is a Troll Two drinking game. So uh, I'm going to uh, put a caveat on this, that if you are a lightweight, don't try this because you'll have alcohol poisoning before you're 20 minutes into the movie. But this is going to be the inaugural the inaugural segment I'm going to have uh, continuing going on for uh, movies applicable to this called Drink It In, Man! Uh, okay, so take a drink when someone eats or drinks, someone yells or screams, a goblin or human changes form, Grandpa Seth appears or disappears. Take a drink when you see a goblin, a milk jug, green liquid or goo, a mole in the shape of a cloverleaf. That's something I left out. All of the people pre-troll 
or goblin transformation. They all have these Irish shamrocks like birthmarks on their on their bodies, which I don't doesn't make any fucking sense. And yeah, there is a weird Stonehenge tie-in, and I don't I don't understand the correlation between goblins and Stonehenge. I think that's literally just they're drawing connections to shit that really isn't there. But there you go. Um, take a drink when someone says Josh, Nilbog, Grandpa, Goblin, or Goblins. Chug your drink when Josh pisses on hospitality. You're going to be shit-faced. And that is to put it lightly by the time you get to through any of those things. Fat Fuck Scott and and and, uh, and Fat Tony, where are you at? We need to have a, a drinking night soon. Alright, here's our fan questions before we close things out. This comes from Adam Heron. Would this movie have a better reputation if it were called Goblins instead of Troll 2? Um, that's a that's a loaded question, and, and here's why I say that. If this movie were called Goblins, it probably, in the short run, would have had a better reputation simply because that's just another added weird layer to its many weird layers. But it being called Troll 2 and not having any trolls is sort of the gateway to why people check this out. So, I, I reputation maybe, but it definitely would not improve the movie. In fact, I think it being called Troll 2 is the, the genius. Uh, it's the, the icing on the ridiculous cake. This question comes from Ben Hopkins. If you were in charge of remaking Troll 2, who would you cast? Now, Ben always gives me the best questions, so thank you, Ben. appreciate that. Um, but I put a lot of thought into this, and just up front, there is no way that you could improve upon this movie. I think the only possible direction you could take it in would be to to do a shot-for-shot, same script, and Claudio has to direct it, but here's your cast. Will Ferrell plays the role of Michael. Michael Sarah as Joshua. Emma Stone as Holly. Kate McKinnon as Diana, just simply because she can do those crazy eyes like nobody else. John C. Riley as Grandpa Seth. Tim Heidecker as the mentally ill shop owner. Eric Wareheim as the sheriff. And rounding it all out, this is where we knock the, the home runs, Zach Galifianakis as the Reverend. And Patton Oswalt as Darren, a.k.a. Oh my God! But bring in the sexy, Credence Leonora Gilgood, the very lovely... Kristen Wiig. So I, I hope that satisfies your question. I want to see this movie, and they should call it Troll 2, Part 2, Part 1. This question comes from Fat Tony. Do you think this movie finally exposes the harsh truth behind veganism? Absolutely. If you don't eat meat, fuck you. Nah, I'm just joking on that. You can be a vegetarian, you can be a vegan or whatever. doesn't affect me, but just don't push your beliefs on me. I'm a meat eater, and uh, as soon as I uh, have my fourth heart attack, I'll, uh, I'll, I might think about changing my ways. All right, this question comes from Amy Blaine. Where do you rank best worst movie in regards to great documentaries about film? Well, I kind of said this earlier. I'd probably put it top three. Um, my absolute favorite documentary about film ever is um, Dangerous Days. It's about the making of Blade Runner. Ridley Scott, all the principal, all basically all the principal writers, characters, actors, everything kind of recounts the hellacious production that was halted and and postponed and uh, drug on. And Ridley Scott, being a, the perfectionist he is, I mean, the the genius is on screen. Blade Runner 
is probably aesthetically to me the most beautiful movie ever made and hearing how big of a pain in the ass and how he really had to fight for his vision to get that movie made that initially was not successful it was really years later before it found its um uh its audience it's just it's something that we don't really see these days uh, so much of movies is just paint by numbers and uh i mean you got tarantino out there keeping you know artistic vision alive and there there are others but it's it's much more of a, a studio paint by number system now so if you if you enjoy movies about filmmaking I, I can't think of anything that even rivals it best worst movie is 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 in the top three maybe even number two if I really thought about it just because it chronicles the fandom and the insanity of it all but it just leaves you with a really great feeling so there's your answer top three this question comes from titty flip and Travis what's the difference between trolls purple headed yogurt slinger and goblins of snake um uh one well um there um trolls purple headed yogurt slinger is in the movie troll uh it's in the x-rated cut you, you probably have never seen it and goblins muffin snake is, is in troll 2 where there are no trolls so there you go travis thank you so much it's uh this question comes from Stank Dick Eddie, and I almost answered this before, but I wanted to save it. Would you bone the chick in the glasses? Hell yeah. So much. Man, she was a stone-cold fox. I would have knocked the knocked the rust out of it now and break her hips all, all day long. Uh, follow-up question. Why aren't there, there more tits in these movies we review? I don't know. It, it all the tits review uh, happen in movies that uh, I'm either doing by myself or they're you know it's usually me and Fat Tony. They're, those movies are the most tittylicious. But Stank Diggetti, who who the titty tally is named after very little boobage. So I don't know what's up with that man. We'll we'll have to coordinate with that. We'll we'll do fucking um, heavy metal sometime soon. Plenty of animated boobies in that movie. All right, this comes from Touch and Tips Skip. You think that goblins would ever touch tips with trolls? Um, uh, as long as they're vegan, vegetarian, sure. All right, one final question. What has better acting? Our friends over at HorrorPorn.com or this film? Well, you absolutely know the answer to that. It's HorrorPorn.com. More cohesive storytelling, and it always ends... In, well... Leaves you with wanting more. I'll, I'll leave it at that. If you're unfamiliar with HorrorPorn.com, um, be, be willing to have your uh, sensibilities rocked. All right, guys, that's going to close us out for another month. We'll be back in December with another more traditional podcast doing a, a full-length feature commentary for Kissmas Special 3, Detroit Rock City. So we're going to get to talk all things about Kiss, rock and roll, and good old 70s nostalgia. Till then, Rant Army, find us on social media, and that includes Twitter and Instagram. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram, at Rants Black Lodge. You can subscribe to the podcast, podcast, podcast on the many platforms we're available on, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, Podbean, Player FM, iHeartRadio, and don't forget to stop by our homepage at JuicyKruger.com. All right, we'll see you next month for Christmas 3. Till then, Rant Army, keep marching.